So as you noted, or have been noted to you, as John <clears throat> just briefly read, verse 11 and 12 is where we're at this morning because we just completed verse 10 uh, last week on the integrity of Paul's ministry. It begins in verse 10 as he makes the argument <clears throat> that he is not seeking the approval of man. That is, it would be contrary to being a servant of Christ if he sought the pursuit of the glory of mankind, that others would uh, praise him and be his followers and applaud his every move. If he sought that level of pleasure, um, he would cease, as he understands it, to be the servant of Christ, and that he adamantly is. And yet he continues this morning, and you'll see throughout the rest of chapter 1, but we're only going to handle a portion, of course, of chapter 1, But yet, what he's going to continue to do is, again, push back against the Judaizers' attempt to smear him. And you remember what the smear is. He's gone, so he planted the church, he was there, and now his physical presence is not uh, not there with them. So the letter is a correspondence because he is not bodily there with them. But he is hearing rumors that those who have snuck into the church and are now teaching yet, what they consider the true gospel. They are now attacking Paul and his gospel. And the main assault upon Paul and his gospel is that it is utterly incomplete. Or maybe we should say essentially incomplete. That is, at the absolute fabric of the gospel that he proclaimed to those in the South Galatian churches, the argument now is it was inadequate. And if you remember, we talked last week about what the argument is toward his inadequacy in his gospel presentation And that is that he left out the necessary components. So indeed, he might have preached faith is required. That someone might preach Christ and receive him through faith. Yet, Paul failed to add the essential components that go along or are are in tandem to faith. And that is circumcision of the flesh. And certain elements of uh, lawful mosaic observance. If you fail to add to the gospel these two components, you fail to preach the gospel, as Paul has done. That's the argument that's taking place in Galatia. And they said, well, you know, again, Paul would have to ask, certainly, why would I leave those components out? If they were a necessary component, what was the angle in in me seeking to leave them out of my proclamation before you? What would have have been the goal of that? And that's where the argument from verse 10 comes from. Obviously, they said, well, because you were seeking the pleasure of men. It was a cheap trick that Paul had pulled on everyone. He's the basic preacher who comes along and tells the people, what they want to hear. So Paul hears of this, and that's what verse 10 is. He pushes back. For am I now seeking the approval of man? When did this begin? Am I now that individual who I'm seeking the approval of man? You hear about me all over the place, preaching a gospel that people simply want to hear? Or am I to please God? Am I trying to please man in the life that I'm leading, in my apostleship? When I was with you, as you have heard since I've been away from you, is that what I'm doing? Because if I am still trying to please man, or if that were my ambition, let me be clear to you as I would understand that and to the Judaizers. I would not be 
a servant of Christ. As we looked at that polemic last week, as Paul refutes the claims, this absolutely cannot be. He rejects it on its face. He appeals to the Galatian church in verse 10 to a shared historical awareness, if you remember. Remember, he says, am I now, in contrast to before? I was not accused of that when I was with you at the first. And in, in fact, you remember what it was like when I appeared to you at the first. And he articulates that a little bit later. I, I think it's chapter 4, it's 3, or four, I think it's into 4, where he says, I came to you in a bodily ailment. I, re- I received a beating, and, and I came to you. And you received me. That was not I received a beating or a stoning because I was preaching the gospel everyone wanted to hear at the time. I came to you in great bodily ailment as evidence that I'm not seeking the pleasure of men, but I'm seeking to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. Am I now materially different? People on the ground are saying, yay, he is, or he was wrong. All along. Again, Paul's argument is going to consistently be, and we're going to move the argument forward, but again, it, it is at every pass. If you look at the book of Acts, where Luke has recorded the missionary burst of the church in the first century, that's the book on mission of the book of Acts, and you see Paul's missionary journeys in there, he is going to argue every pass. I have never, in service to myself, modified the truth. This is another piece where ministers also are under this same call. And then you as members, those who are in attendance to the church, are to weigh that evidence. Where should we spend Lord's Day? To whom should we gather for words of thought and insight and wisdom? To those who simply say what we want to hear, to those who seem to modify truth claims by evidence that they simply just want more of themselves proclaimed or they want a greater following, higher readership, better attendance. Paul lays it out for a minister that he is never in service to himself to modify the truth. If this is the case in a minister, and Paul says he is no longer a servant of Christ, he ought be defrocked. Now he moves on in his argumentation by further refuting the claims of the Judaizers. He's not going to leave them alone. He's going after them because the battle for the church is at the center. This church is on the tipping point, the crux, as it were, as Paul sees it. He is about to lose the entire Galatian project. This is of the highest importance and magnitude. When you tear your doctrinal kind of importance when you're looking at first things and secondary things and tertiary things, the book of Galatians is of primary uh, importance here. The, the, the gospel itself is at stake. So Paul's going to continue to ramp up his defense of not only himself but also his gospel. Because remember, the integrity of the minister is also tied to the, the integrity of the message. Now, it can still stand alone as right. It's not like somehow the minister makes it right. But the integrity of his proclamation is tied to the integrity of the person. And Paul knows this. And so he's going to defend the gospel, but in doing so, he has to also defend himself. He is part and parcel of the message that's being delivered. 
It's not just the words coming out, but it's also the, 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 the person who sang them. There's, there, there's some connection to the integrity of the entire project. So Paul is going to push the argument further to refute the claims of the Judaizers. That he's simply a man-pleaser. He's going to do it in three ways, and this week we'll just handle the first. But he refutes their claims first, and this is what I want to look at just for a few moments with you. Is He begins to refute in verse 11 and 12 uh, their claims against him in his gospel by explaining the origins of the gospel. That, that's what he's going to say. Uh, 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 he's going to go right to ground level zero and deal with the origins of the gospel itself. Then from there in his autobiographical account in the rest of chapter 1, and we'll see this coming forward, is that he will explain his own conversion to the gospel. So what are the origins of the gospel? From where does the gospel come or originate? And then his own conversion story, and he gets in there, and you're familiar. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. This is who I was. This is what happened to me in my conversion unto the gospel that is not my own. And then thirdly, uh, by the end of chapter 1, He'll continue to refute the claims that he's simply a man-pleaser by explaining his early Christian experience in the gospel. But I want to look at the first, as I said with you, just for a few moments, and that is how Paul explains the origins of the gospel as a defense for what he's preached content-wise among them. Notice verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, Brothers, and again, I, I do note for you, I'll, 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 I'll not note this every way along the path, but I do think it's important to recognize Paul's language uh, of kindness. There's a note of severity, but there is an appeal to warmth. He's, he's not shaving corners here. He is taking a sledgehammer to the situation, and you'll see it as the book unfolds. He will stand down on nothing because it's about first importance issues. But even in this polemic where it is very heavy-handed and rightfully so he still appeals to them in some way as brothers again there's something to be said in polemics that way that that you don't shrink away from content but your content can be used in a brotherly fashion to be nice doesn't mean you need to jettison content and and that's what we see here from paul but again to the point For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, right, that is is now under attack by the Judaizers who are there, that it's insufficient, essentially insufficient, that I didn't say what needed really to be said because I'm trying to please man. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, here, if you were to chart the rest of the chapter, or what we've been building up from verse 1 to the climax of the chapter, here is the central proposition of the entire chapter. This is the central thesis, the central piece of the entire thing, and that is that the gospel is not man's. That is, and he speaks of this in a kind of a twofold manner, really. Two kinds of senses carried by saying, this does not belong to man, neither is it of man in its origins. That is, on the one hand, as Paul is going to make clear, the gospel is not a simple commodity which can be modified 
to meet the tastes and preferences of each consumer. This is his argument. It, it, it doesn't principally belong to man. And then we'll get to the second sense is that it is not of man. But it doesn't belong to man. It's not a simple commodity that we carry about ourselves. And we go along to others and we listen first of what they want to hear. And then we modify the contents in order to meet the palate. To change the preferences so that they meet the consumer demands. I would have you know, brothers, that is not even how it works. Let alone that I am being challenged and accused of doing such. Paul has already said earlier in the letter at the outset, that kind of commodity, the idea that the gospel is a thing that can be adapted and modified to meet the consumer's needs. Paul has already made clear in the text that which is occurring in that manner is not a gospel at all. That's an important piece as we critique ministries, or we critique podcasts, or we critique articles, and we look at various ministers in their office. It's a necessary work of the church to evaluate presentations of the gospel. Because again, to modify it is to lose it. We must be clear on what the gospel is. And it's important to note that if the gospel is something, then it isn't everything. Speaking of gospeling this or gospeling that, if the gospel is something, then it can't be everything. It's not a commodity. It doesn't work like that. And when it becomes that in the life of the church, then it ceases to be a gospel at all. To be clear, in the summary, and we'll see through the book, very clear presentation of what the gospel is in great contrast to what it is not as the book unfolds. It's just now picking up energy on the, on the, uh, on the takeoff runway. If, if you were to think of the book as, as, a, as a plane, it's just now turning on the jets. It's kind of like taxied around, and you're like, okay, good, finally. We've been sitting on the runway for the tarmac for like 40 minutes while this person puts her bag away. And then it's finally like, yes, we're moving. Okay, right, and we squared away, and now we're moving, and we can feel, and the ground is starting to pace. We're at that point in the book. It hasn't quite yet taken off, but it's just now launching, just now taking off. And so the book will continue to escalate in its theme, and the gospel will continue to get clearer and clearer and clearer along the path. But to be clear at this point, For our sakes, the gospel is the announcement. That's the term gospel. It's a good news. It's a a herald announcement. The gospel is the announcement of God's victory over sin and death in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And it doesn't belong or originate from mankind. When we think of it here this morning, and you're hearing the gospel, you just heard the announcement that God has attained victory over sin through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. That announcement you have just heard is not the invention of the church through her own resources. 
The church does not create the gospel. The church receives and proclaims that same gospel. When we hear it modified, though we are creating it, as though we are creating it, in those moments we lose it. To be clear, once again, the church receives the good news of Jesus Christ. It doesn't create it. So on the one hand, this is what Paul means, that it is not a commodity. The gospel doesn't even work like this. It does not belong to man. On the other hand, as we think of it in the two senses, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel, was not, that, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's, and that is in the sense of a commodity. On the other hand, it carries a sense that neither is it of man. In the sense that Paul did not simply learn it by the ministry of fellow men. It is that they quarantined him for a season of time, indoctrinated him with the core three principles of life, death, and resurrection. That he simply learned how to proclaim it to a crowd and to help them to modify it to their needs and their felt needs and their perceived needs and be able to ramp it up to create a good following. He'll say, it is not like that. It's not of man in the sense that I simply learned it from the ministry of fellow men or that I received it by the manner of human means at all. The origin of it belongs to Jesus Christ. You see, notice how he, he says this. It doesn't belong to mankind by commodity or origins. I didn't receive it from any individual man. Nor was I taught it by a man or a series of men. And so he locates the origin of the gospel he preached to them that is not essentially insufficient, but is wholly sufficient for their faith to terminate on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says... I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. When we think of the term, and we'll look at this event in just a moment, but we think of the term immediate revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is appealing to the fact is if his gospel is insufficient essentially, then he received an insufficient gospel from Christ himself. It wasn't a few notes that he forgot to jot down when he was being taught it by fellow men. He didn't leave off circumcision because he wasn't paying attention in class at that moment. He's arguing, I delivered to you what was given to me by immediate revelatory information. Christ literally appeared to Paul and he audibly spoke to him. Now, I want to pause here just for a moment because I think it's important in our time and place to recognize that this is not how we receive the gospel. I want you to understand that is a distinct work that Paul experienced and that that is not how we ought to conceive of how we have received the gospel. An, an appearance or an audible voice from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a difference among Protestants of that view. Is it how some can still yet receive the gospel? For my mileage on that question, is it possible that someone can hear a voice, an audible voice, and receive information that way? Can they receive the gospel through an immediate revelatory work in this day and age? Is it possible? I, I 
from my knowledge, I'd say perhaps. I can't look into the mystical and define everyone's human experience, whether it be here in the United States or around the globe. Is it possible, indeed, God is not bound by human means? But do we know decisively that it is his will to work through human means for the proclamation of the gospel? And the answer to that is yes. So, is it possible? I, I, I don't think we could say it's not. Is it probable? The answer to that is no. You see, and this is important for us to grasp, not simply so we can debate and argue and cre- create more divisions among us, but it is important that we receive it and meditate upon it because through this we understand that we need the organism of the church. Why? Because we receive the gospel, as you're doing now, through the ordinary, not the extraordinary means, but the ordinary means of preaching. You and I, together, we receive the gospel, we heard it. As Paul says, how will they hear unless someone preaches it to them? This is significant for how we ordinary hear, ordinarily hear the gospel. We hear it through the preaching office. We hear it through reading of the word out loud in worship. We hear it in conversation with, ta- with, with believers, in conversation, talking one with another. In other words, we receive the gospel. Unlike Paul is arguing here, you and I, we today most regularly receive the gospel through a mediated form. And the mediated form is the church. If you will, if you have a text on your lap, turn over to Ephesians 4, just for a moment, just briefly. We'll see how Paul argues this uh, elsewhere. But I just want to draw your attention again, the centrality of the church in the life of the pilgrim. And again, I, I would say to you, it's not that we just need the gospel at the first, but we need to remember the gospel all the time. All the time. Because we are hardwired since the fall to seek legalism. It's not that, oh, I heard the gospel, I've been set free from my legalistic tendencies of self-earned redemption, and now I'm, I'm past that. No, you're not. You're not. You will return to it every day. Sometimes it would be more obvious to you than others, but if you sit and meditate upon your own conscience, you will see that you strive to earn redemption. The gospel wasn't only good at the first, it's continuously the need of the people of God to hear the good news of your victory comes from the work of another, not from your own. And part of hearing that is gathering on Lord's Day to hear it from your minister, to say it one with another, to sing over it with a jubilant spirit. This is why God gave us the church. So Paul says to the church at Ephesus, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for for, for building up the body of Christ. This is why he gave you ministers and teachers Because we won't have that immediate revelatory experience that Paul experienced on the Damascus Road when we stay home on Sunday morning. 
you won't have it. So he gave you pastors and teachers to equip you to do the work of the ministry and to build you up in your faith. Then he continues, until we all, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, which now you can hear in the great contrast to those in the South Galatian churches. Notice why they need the church, verse 14. Because tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, Judaizers in Galatia, by human cunning, adding circumcision, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Paul just didn't get it right. Are you sure? Yeah, he's a man pleaser. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's the work of the church, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, we, you and I, each of us, pilgrims on the way, still need the church as an organism. And I want to draw your attention to yet another piece of why we need the church and it's here with the folks at Galatia that we can sympathize. But I want to draw your attention to this thought. The goodness of God in giving us together, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ in this age. Is because principally, we, you and I, are incapable of self-diagnosing. Think of that for a moment. That right now we're all arriving at a Good diagnosis, but how? Through the text of Holy Scripture. You see, whether it's our physical or our spiritual health, we need someone to stand outside of us and tell us the truth regarding our condition. Who stands outside of us and tells us the truth of our condition? Well, spiritually, this occurs through the ministries of the church. Think of that the next time you just think, meh, church. Just because it happens to all of us, right? There, there's some Sundays, are, there's some Sundays, are like, meh, and there's everything in between in the life of the pilgrim. A newsflash, it's the same way for ministers. Life in the church can be highs, can be lows, but we need the church. We're incapable of self-diagnosing on our bedside. Um, there's a great comment here. Mike Horton uh, amplifies this thought just a little bit. I, it's a, a little bit of a lengthy quote. Please uh, listen along. I think it will benefit you in this thought of self-diagnosis. Horton writes this. I resist doctor's appointments. I think we have a few doctors in the house this morning. We all feel that way about you guys. No. Um, but he says this. Dentists would be worse, right? All right. Anyway. Um, I resist doctor's appointments like the plague. 
pleading to my wife that I know my own issues and how best to treat them. The offensiveness of the inevitable checkup begins with being weighed. I am always several pounds heavier than I am when I weigh myself at home. And the nurse never allows me even to empty my pockets or take off my belt. Forced to face the facts. Presented to me after my medical exam. I know at that moment that ignorance is not bliss. It can lead to serious problems down the line. And we need physicians. Both of the body and of the soul. Who are willing to ruin our day. Accumulating teachers who will tell us whatever our itching ears want to hear is even more dangerous than finding a doctor who will make us feel good even when we shouldn't. We cannot diagnose ourselves. When we hear someone who is commissioned by God to deliver his word, after careful preparation and deliberation, our defense mechanisms break down. Our excuses lose their saliency as we are weighed on true scales. As he says there, quite simply, we, you, and I together need the church. But there's a question that remains. Indeed, we all acknowledge, yes, we're here. We know our need at baseline is the organism of the people of God and its ministries to us. But the question still remains, even if we're here physically right now, even though you're here sitting here listening to me, the question still remains to each of us on every Lord's Day, and that is this. Will we allow ourselves to hear the truth about our condition? Will we allow ourselves to hear the truth about our condition so that we are ready for the good news of Jesus Christ? But further, we'll just kind of draw towards the second portion of our time together on this idea to Paul. What, what, what is this immediate revelation? Notice the text once again. For I didn't receive it. It's not, it doesn't belong to man. It's not his to possess as a commodity to serve up to fellow men. And it doesn't originate from his lips. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it by, by a collective of men. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this revelation? If you would, turn to Acts 9 just briefly. Let's look at this text just for a moment as you see. This is what he's speaking of as he refers to his time uh, earlier with them, his autobiographical contents. He's appealing to the book of Acts again and again. Here, once again, you're probably familiar with this story, but I will read this text for you beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9 because this is what he's arguing for in Galatians 1. This is how I receive the gospel. It cannot be foundationally insufficient. I didn't make it up. Verse 1. You know this story here well, but let me read it for you. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way... He approached Damascus, 
And suddenly, this is Paul, Galatians 1. I didn't receive it from a man, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the event. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice and seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. I want to conclude with this thought here. It, it applies to his Galatian 1 apologetic, and that is the end of 19 and verse 20. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. But notice verse 20 clarifies this of what he was doing among the disciples. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying what? He is the Son of God. You see, this is the event that Paul is referring to in Galatians 1 as an apologetic for the gospel doesn't belong to men. It's not a commodity, and I didn't receive it simply by other men. I received it decisively from an audible voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I was a chosen instrument by him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, as I have faithfully done. I was commissioned and sent on my way by the disciples in Ananias. Now, important to note here is the role that Ananias played. You notice that it's Paul saying, I was not taught by men. And if you look carefully at the text of Acts 9, you notice Ananias did not do any teaching to Paul. Rather, he was sent there to baptize and lay hands upon Paul and commission him for the preaching of the gospel. 
Paul, by referring to his time in Damascus, is not making an argumentative mistake. Oh, you forgot. Ananias told you everything. If we look at the text very carefully, carefully, we see indeed Ananias was not a primary teacher to Paul. He was a primary witness to God's immediate work upon Paul. Paul indeed did not modify the gospel that was given him. He faithfully proclaimed that which was given him directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther wisely notes about the book of Acts there on the account of Paul's conversion. Luther makes this comment, and I'm working towards our close right now. Luther makes this comment to summarize the events, and it's very helpful. He says, quote, Having already been called, enlightened, and taught by Christ on the Damascus Road, he was sent to Ananias so that he might have the testimony of men to also his having been called by God to preach the gospel of Christ. Again, as Luther notes, well, Ananias was a secondary witness to the events. He was not a primary instructor upon those events. Paul is not poorly delivering a gospel secondhand. He's giving the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in primary fashion. I'm giving to you what was directly and immediately given to me. Then in summary or in conclusion to our time together, what do we learn from Paul's defense so far? Again, a little bit of it is history, and yet there is application to be learned. What do we learn about Paul's defense when he says, for I would have you know to to us, that is the people of Redeemer, as we read these texts faithfully and we seek to apply them rightly to our lives. How do we do so when Paul says, for I would have you to know that the gospel that was preached by me, and we can say now inscripturated in these texts, is not man's. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What are we to learn from such a defense of the gospel? I think the answer is this. That Paul, on the road to Damascus, was directly taught by the Lord Jesus Christ that the message for the mission of the church was, is, and forever will be in this age justification through faith alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will enable us to steward this gospel of justification through faith alone. Well, that we'll be faithful, as Paul is modeling here as ministers of this church or members of session, that we would be men who prize the gospel as it is given in Holy Scripture. That we would be keen on it so as not to mix it, conflate it, or confuse it with another, but that we would be rigid in our commitments to the inscripturated text. 
that we'd seek wisely to apply it and make sense of it, to be helpful, even if not relevant, but that we'd be eternally helpful. Lord, help us in this task. Help the church here at Redeemer to be those who understand the contents of the good news announcement, who as they attend, if they find themselves at odds, to be reconciled. Give the grace of your Holy Spirit. Give the grace and gifts of repentance and faith. Let the broken be made strong and whole. Let the one driven away be drawn back. Let our tone be right. Let it be direct and clear, yet appeal to one another as brother, sister, father, daughter, son, mother, and the people of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.